0: Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, Talk About Adoption and Foster Care. I'm Dawn Davenport and I am the host of this show as well as the director of the nonprofit CreatingAFamily.org. Today we're going to be talking about parenting adopted teens and young adults. We're going to be talking with Katie Natsieger. She is a licensed clinical social worker. She is a Korean adoptee and she is the author of a terrific book, Parenting in the Eye of the Storm. The Adoptive Parents Guide to Navigating the Teen Years. She has a private psychotherapy practice in Newton, Massachusetts, where she primarily sees adoptees and families. Currently, Katie facilitates an online group for adoptive parents whose teens are struggling with mental health issues, as well as a group for adopted teens and young adults. Welcome, Katie. Welcome back to Creating a Family.
1: Thank you so much, Don.
0: So. Let's say I, I do love the book Parenting in the Eye of the Storm. It is, I think, a, a valuable uh, guide for those of us who have or are in the process of or who have parented teens. Why is parenting an adopted teen any different from parenting a child who comes to our family by birth?
1: I think in addition to the usual challenges that teenhood brings, we have the added overlay of the adoption piece, and the race piece. And many adoptive parents describe feeling pretty affected by the hardships and the trauma that the child has already faced. And it really affects and changes and can sometimes sort of influence the way that adoptive parents parent. And think also, you know, there's some parallels between adoptive parents and adoptees in terms of the ongoing kind of complexity of that experience. For example, Adoptive parents also don't have all of the information that biological parents have, like genetic history or Mm -hmm. even genetic overlap in behavioral issues. Or I was just like that when I was a kid or, Mm -hmm. you know, my brother was the same way. And sometimes there's not that much overlap. And when there's not that much overlap, it can make it all the more difficult to sort of like catch up and try to figure out what's going on.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And as you point out, our not always, but many of our kids have come from a background where they've experienced trauma, or, or at the very least, they've experienced loss, and that does change how you parent them. And I and you're right that I think that parents may parent sometimes differently, even if they shouldn't, but but for fear that that they need to parent differently, or worry that that the behaviors that they're seeing are something that they need to worry about. Whereas a child that comes to us through birth we might be better able to parent through it because we think that it is, and I'm using air quotes here, normal.
1: I think that, you know, sometimes adoptive parents, whether it's conscious or not, might end up wanting to kind of offset some of the previous struggles that they perceive their adoptees having already gone through before joining their family. And so they want to provide like a corrective experience, a positive experience of being a child and being loved and not being abandoned and not being kind of left behind or Mm -hmm. misunderstood. And so they want to, you know, kind of compensate for all of the struggles that the
0: adoptees have had. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think that can be very much the case. So, but, but are there issues related to adoption that do come to the fore, do come to the front uh, during the teen years?
1: Well, the teen years are really interesting because, of course, one of the primary parts of becoming a teen is the physiological change of puberty and that kind of thing. And, and when the adoptee becomes physically equipped to have kids, even though we're assuming that that's not going to happen for a while, but when they become physically equipped, they start to be able to really identify with the first parent in a different way than they could before. So when they were younger, they might have thought about missing the birth parent. They might have wondered specific things about the birth parent, like how tall they are, what they look like, or even what happened. But when they become teens, they start to be able to imagine being the birth parent. And that's a pretty marked shift for adoptees. And that's one reason why kind of the adoption experience can become so much more intense at that point. mm
0: mm-hmm. and, and are there issues... Also, that that one of the developmental issues, one of the developmental milestones for our teen years is developing our identity. And so, just how is developing your identity complicated by the fact that you are being raised by non biological parents?
1: It does seem to be pretty challenging. I think that, you know, for those who are not adopted and not in that kind of sphere, I think we can be sort of surprised that adoptees have so much difficulty, specifically adopted teens, envisioning their future. And I've had enough adopted teens and even young adults talk with me about the fact that they can't really see themselves as having a future, even if everyone has told them how much potential they have as a person and how many talents and how much they bring to the table in their, you know, in their future and everything, they themselves can't really picture it. And I think... It's interesting, too, because for some, trauma can also lead to people having trouble envisioning their future. So Mm -hmm. it's hard to say necessarily which
0: one is more in play at any given point. But it is a real thing, yeah. I was just going to, that begs the next question I was thinking about. And in addition to identity issues that are related to not knowing, potentially with open adoption, they may well know, but for many adoptees, even now, they still don't know their birth parents. So that raises identity issues. But also, many children have come from neglect, abuse, loss. And how does that, how does neglect, abuse, or loss impact they transition from childhood to adolescence and then, the, and then the transition from adolescence into adulthood?
1: You know, I think that many of us take for granted that feeling of safety, that sort of assumption that everything is going to be okay, that we can take for mm-hmm. granted, that we have a family and that they love us and that, you know, we'll be with them forever. And when we come to adoption, when we are adopted teens, we don't necessarily take that for granted. And so I think that's really compounded when there's a kind of clear, palpable abuse history, that there really is a feeling that everything is not going to be okay, Mm -hmm. that really the expectation is that it's going to go wrong somehow, and it's just a question of how and when.
0: Right, because it has gone, they have that experience. That's what's happening. Absolutely. Mm -hmm.
1: Right.
0: Before we move off on the identity formation part, I think it'd be helpful to... Generally speaking, something has gone wrong for a child to be placed for adoption in their birth parent's life. Something has gone happened in the birth parent's life that is, that has created the opportunity for them making a decision to place a child, or for having had the child removed from them, and be placed. And so something, and and that that, and, and it could be during their teen years, could also be in their twenties. But generally, it's in that that range of time that we're talking about today, and. Having knowing that your birth parent, the one who you are genetically connected to, struggled, if they did, or had uh, mental health issues, if they did, or had substance abuse issues, if that was in, uh, in playing, or making poor decisions, or was violent, had domestic violence issues, or whatever, how does that play? with from a teen standpoint or a young adult standpoint as they try to structure who they are which is the milestone that they're supposed to be doing now at this age
1: i think it can be pretty haunting especially for adopted males it can be pretty haunting to know in their adoption history that maybe their their birth father was violent in some way or that there was violence in their background relating to their Birth father, especially. I mean, of course, that could happen with either parent, but adopted males, specifically in my practice, have talked about that fear, especially when they're heading into certain developmental milestones like marriage, like college, like their future, that they Mm -hmm. do worry and are confused about why this happened and how this happened. Mm -hmm. And that lack of certainty about why this happened leads them to really feel scared. Mm-hmm. About what they might be capable of, because mm-hmm. if we can't say definitely that, oh, it's environmental, it was just because of the you know their country and because of this specific
0: thing that they went through, then there is a fear that it's genetic mm-hmm. and that fear really haunts them. Will I turn out like my birth father? Will I turn out like my birth mother? you know will i how that that uh, the tension between nature versus nurture? Yeah. And the
1: ten- the tension between adoptive parents and birth parents, you know, that it's a pretty kind of confusing message when teenagers are also headed into romantic relationships, potentially, mm-hmm. right? So that's another big change from the younger years to the teen years. And then, of course, young adult, that the concept of love has been talked a lot about in the adoption community. But it's confusing, because on one hand, the story says that well, your birth mom loved you and so she gave you up so you could have a better life or maybe some variation of that, or at least that's what's been internalized by Mm -hmm. the adoptee. Mm -hmm. And yet the other story that is also circulating is we love you, we'll never abandon you. And that's from the adoptive parent. And so it's a very, very complicated message in terms of, well, what Mm -hmm. is love exactly? Does love mean that you sacrifice yourself? Does love mean that you don't sacrifice? You know, do, do you stay? Does that is that what love is? And so, you know, adopted teens in particular are faced with all of these messages and all of this complexity
0: when they're heading into romantic relationships. Well, yeah, very true. And romantic relationships can potentially lead to an unwanted or an unplanned pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Another way of circling back to repeating, and, and does that complicate the feelings of, of of how you enter this relationship and what you do once there. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think what I've seen even more is a fear of settling down, a fear of maybe having biological kids because there's still so much anguish or so much confusion about who they are as parents, who they are as people, and feeling like it's hard for them to then become this other role, this maternal or paternal type of role, given that they're trying to still sort everything out.
0: Yeah. In your book, Parenting in the Eye of the Storm, you talk about adoptive or foster parents taking a, what you call a learning stance when working with teens. What do you mean by that? What is a learning stance?
1: Well, I mean, what I mean is that it's common for us to be able to see Our kids issues better than we can see our own sometimes because we're constantly thinking about them and we, we love and adore them and we, you know, do a lot of things for them. So sometimes adoptive parents, as all parents can not be as clear about what they might bring to the table in terms of their own attachment style or in terms of their own blind spots, you know, that they might be so focused on the child or the team that they lose sight of their part. And so the learning stance is really an invitation for adoptive parents to be just as curious about their own role as they are about the teen's role in a situation, any given situation.
0: Yeah, we often say it's a two-way street. We parents bring as much to the table as do our children. And yet it's much easier to to point to the child as the one who struggles, the child who needs therapy, the child or the young adult or the, t- or the teen. Rather than saying, hmm, maybe I need to be working on some things. Maybe I'm reacting in such a way that uh is not healthy and maybe I need to own that. That's that's cringe worthy for a parent. Yes
1: it is. Yes it is. And and I think what's even also uncomfortable is that, you know, it's easy for us as parents or for adoptive parents to not disregard, but maybe minimize something that they're saying, maybe because they're saying it in a in a like With their yelling or something, or they're saying it in a way that feels extreme or dramatic. And so we might disregard it or minimize it. Hmm. And in fact, there probably is some truth to everything that they say, which is maybe upsetting in some ways.
0: I was going to say, that's disconcerting. (laughs) (laughs) Just thinking back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I know. I know. Maybe not the grandiosity or the kind of the level that it's being said or kind of the depth in which it's being said. But it is easy to kind of, yeah, to disregard them. But yeah, they are speaking a certain truth because what's interesting is that they can see us as well as we can see them. And that's a lot too, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: Absolutely. We are excited to let you know that we have... 12 free online courses available for you. These courses are brought to you by the support of the Jockey Bean Family Foundation. We are in the process of uploading new courses into the free library of courses. So if you have partaken of the courses in the past, check it out again because there are some new ones up there. You can find them all at bit.ly slash jbfsupport. That is bit.ly slash JBF support. I-, I wanted to go back to something you raised at the beginning. Our kids often, not always, but often, come to us from experiencing early life adversity, or and they, and that does impact them, and it impacts. Sometimes it impacts their ability to to move in this world. Sometimes it impacts the way that they behave or how they are perceived. And although I don't think parents would ever use the word pity, they are very often aware of, of how their children have been impacted. And it does, it does impact how you parent, or it can. So how does that feeling, how does that interfere with something, maybe our health, the way we should be a healthy parenting relationship for our teens?
1: You know, one of the questions I I keep in mind is, okay, is what's happening going to help the adopted teen to feel more empowered or Mm. less empowered? And Mm -hmm. so I agree that probably most of us would not use the word pity as what we tend to do with our kids, but I would hope not. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know, but sometimes adopted parents can inadvertently make decisions that lead the adoptee to feel less empowered more disempowered. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes a kind of a signal for us that, oh, maybe we need to look at why we're doing this. I mean, I think the other signal is when adoptive parents might say something like, well, this is just, it's just going to be too much for them. Mm -hmm. Or it's just, I don't want her to have to go through that, you know? And while there's definitely a place for that, you know, we can't help but wonder again about, you know, are we overcompensating somehow?
0: Yeah. In your practice, Do you see, and you may not see it because your practice is primarily focused on adoptive families, but is there a tendency for adoptive parents to be more, in the vernacular, we call it what, uh, helicopter parents, or they're so invested, they had to work so hard to get these kids, that they're, it is harder for them to allow their kids to fail, to allow their kids to make mistakes, to allow their kids to do things in ways that they wouldn't have done. Mm -hmm. Or is that a stereotype I'm working off of?
1: No, I think that I think there is probably some truth to that. And you know, we had mentioned earlier not wanting the adoptee to suffer more than they already have. Mm
0: -hmm. So that's
1: already a foundation of, well, let me try to make life a little bit easier given that they've already been through so much. And I think we worry a little bit about their resilience, about their ability to bounce back, you know, to kind of cope and you know manage failures and negative feedback and other things that happen in life. And I think the other thing that's interesting too is that is in terms of the attunement that we end up really emphasizing attunement. And I do sometimes wonder whether that's partially related to, to, to. adoptive parents wanting to close that gap of understanding, given that there are certain things that were, you know, adoptive parents may not feel like they totally understand what's happening, either because they're not adopted, or because they're not mm-hmm. Asian, or they're not whatever. Um, and so they take extra steps to want to be attuned to their child or their teen. And sometimes I talk in my work about maybe even being a little too attuned you know, because
0: give an example of of what you mean by attunement,
1: like they might say, "Oh, you know, she was uh, they, like if like, let's say an adopted teen doesn't want to go to school and they say, "Oh, well, she's really going through this and that and she's going through this and that as opposed to she we, she needs to go to school,
0: yeah, she know? may be going through this and that, but she can go through the this and that at school too. That at type school, of yeah, yeah. And so there's more of a focus on understanding
1: them and and while understanding them is definitely important, it's not, always what's most important. You know, There, are, it's also important to help them learn how to deal with kind of limits and parameters and expectations, too.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. As long as we're talking about parents, I will raise another one, uh, another uh, potential issue. Some, and again, not all, but some adoptive parents went into adoption out of a feeling of a need to save the child, called the savior complex. How does the savior narrative impact parenting teens when teens are at that stage where we hope they are pulling away from us? And some of that pulling away doesn't always look appreciative, quite frankly. <laughs> it isn't appreciative. Uh, that's uh, that's part of how it make, makes it easier to pull away. Right. It is part of the the job, maybe, of the adopted
1: teen to to try to kind of Believe in themselves more than they believe in their parent in some ways, mm-hmm. um, to trust themselves and to build on that. But, um, yeah, I think that's problematic in a lot of ways. I think one way that it's problematic is that it makes the story about the adoptive parent, you know, that the adoptive parent has done this thing that's so wonderful and so difficult, you know. So we find ourselves in situations where adoptive parents are talking about their story, not about the story of the child or like the situation with the child. It's about their story of how they adopted and why they adopted. And that's that can sometimes be sort of a red flag or just a signal for you as an adoptive parent if you find yourself telling your story over and over again, you know, instead mm-hmm. of focusing on the child.
0: And how does it, and when, if we adopt, even if it's on the uh, unconscious level with the idea that we are stepping forth and, and, but for us, this child would have had a horrible life. When our children are young, they either don't pick up or they they don't pick up on it or they buy into it. but I think but in our teen years, I think a lot of teens don't want to buy into that story and would actively push against that story
1: yeah so i I think we see teens trying to kind of separate themselves from their parent, and that can be pretty challenging because when i think when an adoptive parent is kind of portraying this frame of look at what they've done for this child, look at what I've done for you, the adoptive parent can then become invested in keeping the child close. That part of of the story from the adoptive parent's perspective is that we're so close. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. what happens for the adoptee, him or herself, is that they feel that they need to be a vehicle for the parent to support the parents' viewpoint of him or herself mm-hmm. that they can't really be their own
0: person and do their own thing. Especially if the parents are coming from that perspective and won't grow past it. Exactly. Exactly. Let's talk some about birth parent issues because at it is as our children enter their teen years and then into their late teen years and early adult years many of them either start searching or start thinking about searching. How does that play in from a a developmental standpoint from an adopted teen? And how can adoptive parents be most helpful at that stage?
1: Well, there's such a range of the way that those conversations can go, of course. You know, adoptees talk a lot about how, how at times their parents are not open to that. And so that really is a challenge for the adoptive parents to, to work with and deal with and think about is what what is their hesitation about that or are they truly open to that? Do they feel threatened by that? I think mm-hmm. in terms of the search itself, you know, the search is really interesting because, well, for one, it's something that usually can mostly happen after the child is older, I mean, sometimes things have occurred like the adoptive parent has searched
0: earlier or something like that. But generally, once your teen gets a cell phone, uh, once they get a a smartphone or get onto a computer, then they're going to have and and then that becomes their choice whether they tell their parents or not.
1: Yes, that becomes their choice. I think with international adoptions, it's a little different because they have to go through the adoption agency, which has become more
0: and more strict. But yes, absolutely. And- for non-international, and even with international, there's you know there are things that they can do. But you're right; it's it's harder. Mm-hmm. But but certainly mm-hmm. for regu- for for non-international adoptees, parents are kidding themselves, I think, if they think that once their child has access, unfettered access, or at least any access, really, to a computer, that I think many of them have already started the process of just trying to. assuming they don't have an open adoption and they can't just call up their birth mom or birth dad. Mm
1: -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of like a divorced divorced parents a little bit, you know, where there can be some animosity or some tension, even if the goals might be the same in general. There might be some tension between the birth parents and the adoptive parents. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if you don't want that, even if you generally know that it's best to be on the same page and all that stuff. And so- the child can or the teen can sometimes feel like they can't tell the
0: other parent
1: mm-hmm. certain things.
0: Oh, very much so. Or even tell, the other, even tell their adoptive parent that they're interested in, in finding their, their birth family.
1: Mm-hmm. And it
0: may not be birth parents. It may be birth siblings. It could be birth grandparents. Or mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And sometimes uh, when they reach out, they find difficult situations. And this can happen anywhere from 14, when again, when they have access to being able to search on their own, which used to be much harder, but now it is not. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if they find difficult situations, maybe they find I mean, it could be they find that their birth parents had subsequent children that they kept or had previous, uh, had older children that they kept. That could be a situation. They may find out. That uh a birth uh, mom uh, is in jail, they may find out that birth family is very poor. How does all of this uh, affect teens and and young adults, not just teens, but any you know anything from middle teenage to early adulthood. And again, what can parents do?
1: Mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's pretty complicated. I'm just thinking about a few situations where the birth parent came into play somehow and you know, to be honest, the adoptive parent is not a significant part of the conversation for many, many adoptees. And, um, and I think that that's, there's a lot of pain in that. And I think that adoptees mm-hmm. do wish that they could talk more with their adoptive parents about that. So I guess the first step would be for adoptive parents to be open about that, to, to kind of be welcoming of that and understanding that the bottom line is that birth parents and adoptive parents are both very much a part of each adoptee's identity
0: you know and you can't how, how do we how do we how do we let our kids know how not kids how do we let our young people our youth and and older know that we're open to it because so often I think adoptive parents are afraid to bring it up am I going to be putting an idea in their head are they ready for this uh so how do we how do we get over ourselves?
1: Yeah. And I think you're right that sometimes we may think that we're trying to open up a conversation when in fact it doesn't work or we really didn't actually do it or somehow. Yeah. Um, but
0: been um, there, done that. Yeah. I know.
1: <laughs> like, wait, I thought I did tell her that it was OK. But, um, <laughs> and so I think, you know, one thing might just be to say, yeah, how much do you ever think about searching? Because the thing about the searching is, is that. It's a little bit like uh, other kinds of mental health things that it's, there's not necessarily as clear of a beginning and end as we might expect. That in a way, searching is something that many adoptees think about
0: a lot all Mm -hmm. the time,
1: even if they never search.
0: Yeah. Even if they choose not to do it. Right. It's something they think about. Right. They think about it. They fantasize about it. They,
1: you know, have different scenarios in their head. and, And we know that because. When I ask them about the scenarios, they can very, very quickly call up the scenarios and call Mm -hmm. up the feelings. It wasn't something that wow, I'd never thought about that. Let me just quickly think of something that Mm -hmm. makes sense. And so the search is more like you know thinking about that part of their lives, thinking about that side of their identity. And you know, do do you ever think about meeting them someday? How much how much do you think about that? Even asking those questions alone Mm -hmm. will. Send a, a clear message that you see it as normal and mm-hmm. appropriate to do that if if it makes sense.
0: And you're open to the conversation. You're not afraid of it. It's by even if your if, if your teen says rolls their eyes and says no, mom. Even if they do that, you still sent the message. The purpose of your conversation was to say, well, if it changes, you know, just even if you don't say, I'm open. The fact that you bring it up in a way without becoming defensive tells them that you're okay if they make that decision and you're here for them.
1: And I think if we're really getting, you know, sort of ambitious, we also can just talk about how we as the adoptive parent might have been thinking about that. And so we're not just asking them to get a yes or no answer. You know, we're asking them to talk about this this part of their relationship with their birth parent. hmm So it's like, yeah, I know. I think about that sometimes. Like, would I ever want to search if I were in your situation or like whether you've ever thought about it before? You know, so we're not, we're trying to keep the door open in every way that even if they never want to
0: search, they can still, there's still plenty to talk about. Mm -hmm. And that we're not afraid of that conversation. All of this conversation, what you and I are talking about, it assumes that there's a search that is necessary. But in fact, the vast majority of children adopted now have some degree of openness. Certainly, if it's an infant adoption in the US, there is some degree of openness. We can define openness in many ways. But even adoptions from foster care, which is the predominant number of adoptions in the US, there is some form of awareness of birth family. So how is it, how do we navigate, how do open adoptions change? When, when our kids are kids, when our children are young, birth parents and, and adoptive parents, probably more adoptive parents than birth parents, are in charge and are navigating and are the the overseers of that relationship. But that changes when our kids are teens. So how does it change?
1: Well, that's that's a really interesting topic. I think that what I've heard from clients and things like that and families is that. If there's any feedback for the parents, it's often that the parents took control of the situation in a way that the adoptee didn't want when they were younger, and that they don't necessarily want to have contact in a consistent way. It does feel very erratic. It does feel very sort of unpredictable where adoptees end up landing on how much or little contact they might want to have. You know, some have a period where they're in regular correspondence and then suddenly feel like they don't have anything else to say or they don't even want to hear from the birth parent. And sometimes it's the other way around where the birth parent kind of pulls back and the adoptee isn't sure what's happening.
0: Mm -hmm. But it becomes that the, the teen, I would assume at some part in the teen to early adult years, that the responsibility for maintaining that relationship or what that relationship looks like shifts from the adoptive parent to the adopted person. And, of course, the birth parent as well, obviously, as well. And they, they have equal say. But the adoptive parents, or maybe I should ask, is the stance of an adoptive parent at that point to start moving into the background. Not not away, because there may be hard things that come up and you want to be there for your child, but that you're not the one who's navigating it. You're not the one who's orchestrating it. I would say so, yeah.
1: I think a lot of it depends on the relationship between the adoptive parent and the adoptee. You know, if there is conflict or distance in that relationship, the adoptive parent can't really be a vehicle in the way or kind of a support in the way that they might want, that in a way they have to focus on their relationship, the adoptee-adoptive parent relationship before they can really Support and get involved with, and be kind of a listener to the birth parent adoptee relationship.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, working on our, their relationship with their uh, with their child is uh, they do that through therapy, through uh, working on their communication, from recognizing their own role and the if there's a dysfunction in the relationship, recognizing their own role there. Anything else that they need to do to focus?
1: I think. That adoptive parents put themselves in a really positive position when they can kind of quickly acknowledge, you know, how their decisions regarding the birth parent might have affected the adoptee. It doesn't mean that they were kind of inherently wrong, but if the adoptee has a negative reaction, it is ideal if the adoptive parent can kind of quickly acknowledge that, Mm -hmm. even if it doesn't mean that they're villains in the way that the adoptee might perceive them in the moment. I think that. Adoptees are extremely sort of private about their relationship with the birth parent. I mean, it's sort of besides the adoptive parent relationship, it is such a an intimate, stressful, emotionally charged
0: mm-hmm.
1: relationship, and so it's they they often don't talk to anyone about it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I can definitely see that. But as a parent, I would want them to know that. Even if I can't solve the problem, I would want them to know that I could be a listening ear, of course. yeah, yes, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. so i I want to send that message for sure that regardless of what's happening, if you need a non-judgmental ear, I'll try to be that that type of uh, I'll try to keep my my judgments mm-hmm. <laughs> in check. Please follow or subscribe to the creating dot org podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We have a huge library of archive shows from our 15-plus years of doing this, and once you subscribe, you can scroll through all those archives and choose the topics that are of interest to you to listen to. So please follow or subscribe. Let me ask about for transracial adoptees. So parenting a transracial adoptee, we've talked about parenting adoptees in general, but what added complexities do you see when the adopted person is a different race than the, or ethnicity than their parents?
1: Well, certainly there are many, many issues there. I think that the one that comes to mind is in relation to potentially sort of dating and other kinds of relationships that happen during the teen years, because with that is this question that most or all teens have is, am I attractive? Am I attractive to the people that I want to be attracted to me? And what can I do about that? And how do I feel about that? And so it is really common for, let's say, Asian adoptees or other non-white adoptees to take issue with their appearance, especially as it compares to the white standard of beauty Mm -hmm. or attractiveness for men as well, and really struggle with feeling attractive in the way that makes them feel comfortable.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that is particularly the case if they're being raised in a predominantly white environment.
1: Absolutely. So many, let's say Asian adopted females have talked with me about being the only one. And I think it's easy to lose sight of how lonely that can be and how much validation we get from our environment. That to be the different one all the time in your life is just very, very Mm-hmm. potentially lonely and confusing in terms of the stereotypes that come up as well.
0: So again, since we're talking about parenting, adopted teens and young adults, what can parents do, transracial adopted parents, what can we do to help our kids? Well, it's interesting. I think that
1: sometimes support is, is what adoptive parents can do, even maybe more so than help per se because mm-hmm. in a way what we want is to empower them to mm-hmm. help themselves or to sure. feel to feel like they can make moves in their in their lives that that can propel them forward and so it really comes back to listening a little bit but listening seems so simple and i think all of us have been in that situation where we've been trying our very best to listen and to be supportive and somehow the conversation still goes south because you know, once an adoptee can feel understood in a conversation and can feel seen in a conversation, they can do a lot with mm-hmm. that.
0: Of course, yeah, and that is, and, and ultimately, empowering them is our role. That's regard. I think that as parents of teens, regardless of whether they come to us through birth or adoption, that's our role.
1: That is, is our we want role. to mm-hmm. we want
0: to launch them. I, I remember in my uh, one of my children is Asian and. When she was a teen, we sat, I knew that she was interested in makeup. And I said, "You know, I don't know the best way to make up asian eyes." and 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 I said, "Let's sit down." So we found together quite a few, actually, video tutorials for makeup, some much more extreme, but we just watched them all, but <laughs> and then we bought all the products and and played with them. And I was thankful when she didn't choose the most extreme. but, uh, You know, as a way of of acknowledging that I didn't know, so we could go to we didn't live near uh, an Asian uh, a strong Asian community where they would have Asian beauty parlors, but we were able to find it on YouTube, and so I think that helped her. I think it helped her feel like that she was uh, able to enhance, even though I would love for her to think that she didn't need makeup at all. She did not feel that way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, Don, that's such a wonderful
1: moment with her. And I I would guess also, yes, that she felt seen because when you're doing that, you're also saying, I know that we don't look the same.
0: Mm-hmm. And that was the message I wanted to send exactly.
1: Yeah. I know that our needs are not the same. And I'm not threatened by that. I'm interested in that. I'm not going to take over, but I am, I want to have a wide enough circle of interest to be able to include mm-hmm. that. And I think you're right that, you know, as much as adoptive parents can be curious and interested in being outside of their comfort zone, because as we know, all of us have some area of privilege. It's not just about race, you know, it's about anything. And I think of privilege as something that's an unearned benefit, a benefit that we didn't do anything to accrue. Mm -hmm. It's just something that makes life a little bit. That sort of paves the way, mm-hmm. and so if you're not white, you don't have that white standard of beauty, and so part of the support that I think adopted teens are asking from their parents is not to minimize that, you know, because mm-hmm. I think that that's sort of the common thread is that adopted teens often feel minimized. Every every so often, there can be a moment, as you're describing, Don, where someone, where a parent really embraces you know, the diversity, the diversity in their family. But more often, it's not discussed at all, or yeah, it's just not discussed.
0: And I have heard of adoptive parents, while they wouldn't say it directly, if their teen starts identifying with their birth culture or their birth race or ethnicity, and oftentimes identifying with it strongly and sometimes identifying with only one segment of what they perceive that culture to be. That adoptive parents can feel threatened. It's like, all of a sudden, you know, all he's listening to is, is whatever, rap, and all, the only sport he's interested in is basketball or whatever, whatever the stereotype that their, their perceptions would be. And from a parent's perspective, they might feel threatened. What would you say to those parents?
1: I would say it's understandable that they might feel sort of abandoned or rejected and and it's interesting that that's a parallel for adoptees you know that <laughs> Exactly you yeah. know that they end up like yeah it's a tough feeling um it's a very very tough feeling and so in a way I I guess I would invite adopted parents to maybe even better understand their adoptee like what that's like what it's like when it feels like the adoptee is moving on without them or maybe just doesn't really it doesn't really connect.
0: Moving to a place they can't reach or fear that they can't reach. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And yeah, I think it makes sense that it would It would sort of stoke the fears of adoptive parents of like, yeah, this, is, this, is, this was my worst fear that I really can't parent this child, that I really can't mm-hmm. kind of get as close as I need to be mm-hmm. to this child to, to be
0: the kind of parent and to have us have the relationship that we need. Don't you think, though, it's helpful for parents to sit back and realize that this is a healthy developmental step? Yes. As much as we want to be so close to our children and have them call us and depend on us, our role really is to launch them. And to do that, they need to separate from us. And to separate from us, they need to form their own identity. And it can't be our identity because that's ours. So... Yeah, I think that, and I, I'd say this again, I think this is, carries with regardless to the child is their birth or adoption, but I think adoption adds, particularly transracial adoption can add uh, added complexity there.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that that sort of relates to this issue of trying to be so attuned, so connected, so understanding that I know my child so well, and I mm-hmm. really understand everything she's saying and doing and that that sort of reinforces how close we are because mm-hmm. I really understand everything and when in fact you know the adopted teen really needs to feel equipped for adulthood and in order to feel equipped for adulthood they need to face a little more adversity they need to practice that feeling of failure and even that feeling of feeling abandoned
0: mm-hmm. you know
1: everyone who's an adult usually has felt abandoned at times and and it's really a feeling that is part of growing up unfortunately and although it is difficult And it's a feeling that it sort of takes practice to tolerate, you know. And so if if the child has been kind of in this nurturing womb-like environment their entire childhood, then they really aren't equipped to kind of set out and do things outside of that. And then they feel even more sort of regressed and incompetent.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, that raises the perfect entree into talking about We've talked about kids who are teens, but what are some of the developmental milestones for all people? And then how does that look for adopted young adults? So, what I'm asking is about the transition into adulthood. What are the developmental milestones for that age, that developmental stage? And how does adoption play into that? Mm
1: -hmm. I think of a couple of themes. One theme is really guilt that. I've been struck by how many, let's say, college-age adoptees feel quite a large sense of guilt in how they have disappointed their parents, how they have not been the daughter or son that they should have been, and the sense of obligation that they have, even to their birth parents, even if they don't have a relationship to their birth parents. And their motivation to do the right thing, the right thing, like, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to major in this. I'm supposed to go to college. And in fact, what ends up happening is that they feel lost because they're doing these things and making these decisions to try to please their parents or maybe even please their birth parents. And in fact, they're not able to access what they really want separate from the the parents in their lives.
0: Mm-hmm. Both sets of parents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any other themes that you see with young adults, adopted young adults?
1: You know, it is just really hard for many, many adopted young adults that I work with to say no, to, to not be everything to everyone, to allow someone to be disappointed, to allow someone to Not get their, their needs met to say no and have that person not think that they're a good worker or a good student, even Mm -hmm. if it's very clear that that's the best thing for them. They don't want to be perceived in a negative way. And that makes it really hard to make decisions that are good for them. You know, Mm -hmm. so for example, you know, someone, you know, adoptee might not want to call in sick, even though she's very, very sick, but she doesn't want to do that because she doesn't want to be perceived negatively. And so that's, kind of an extensive process or even boundaries with their parents with their adoptive parents that adoptees adopted young adults are really reticent to get into it with them because Mm -hmm. they feel guilty because they they feel that they can't really justify fighting their adoptive parents because of all that their parents have given them
0: Mm -hmm. an indebtedness feeling
1: Yeah, that, that even adopted adults will talk about how they still want their adoptive parents to know that they made a good choice, that they, that they feel guilt that their adoptive parents didn't sign up for this. Their adoptive parents didn't sign up for someone with, you know, someone who has mental health issues or someone who is so angry all the time or, you know, that there's a feeling that, you know, they have to earn their keep still, Mm -hmm. even though that's very much not the case.
0: That earning their keep. That's exactly what I was, when you were describing, it's like they still have to, you know, dance for their supper type of thing. They do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what do we as parents, I, there are probably some parents who that would be fine with, but I don't think the majority, most of us parents of young adults, and, and I count myself in that, in that category, you know, that's, that's not what I want my children to feel. So I guess saying that to our children.
1: Well, I guess, yeah, I guess saying that, I guess kind of differentiating between whether, you know, what you want as their parent and what they want. And mm-hmm. just by saying something like that, well, of course, you know, all else being equal, would I want you to XXX? Sure. But really, what you want is also important. Mm-hmm. It's more important what you want than it is to please me. So mm-hmm. I might just put that out there as something for them to chew on because sometimes it's
0: automatic pilot. And we're not talking about it because we're not even aware of it. But knowing that that is a typical thinking and a typical response, then again, it goes back to when we were talking about search, bringing it up, because by bringing it up, we are showing that we're open for the conversation. Mm -hmm. Even if it is not, even if the conversation doesn't happen then, or even never happens, we have shown that we are, we're not afraid of the conversation and that we can have the conversation. Mm -hmm. I
1: think the other thing that we're doing when we, when we might acknowledge our own feeling about something and then also acknowledge that their feeling and their experience might be different suggests a lot of things too. I think that it says that we know ourselves, you know, that we can tolerate and maybe even embrace differences, that it's not just about being the same, that we can connect through differences too. They don't have to be like us in order to be loved by us, you know, and I, I mean, that comes up with my, clients too you know and that's why I do sort of talk about well I can see that you wouldn't want to sit for several hours a day listening to people's problem you know that that I sort of joke about you know how different we might be or oh wow wilderness program that would be I could see how you would really love that now I on the other hand not so much but <laughs> but you know but I could really see that for you you know so so we're really helping to sort of clarify their identity a little bit Mm -hmm. too, that they have their own voice and their own story.
0: Mm -hmm. And that our adopted young adults may need us to be more proactive than our children by birth.
1: Maybe more than we might expect. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe more than we might expect. I think the other thing that can sometimes happen for young adults is sometimes young adults have sort of um, skated through, kind of gone through the motions enough in high school where it was okay in high school. And then when they leave for college, they don't have their relationship with their adoptive parents as their primary daily relationship. You know, I mean, it's there. Which they are. Yes, but that is a normal developmental stage. That is, that yeah. that, yes, it is. It's absolutely a normal stage. But they're really left because so much of their energy sometimes has been in that relationship, in the adoptive parent adoptee relationship. And Mm -hmm. so when that is kind of lifted suddenly, Mm -hmm. at least in terms of the everyday interactions, they're really kind of lost. You're talking the parent? No, the child. The The the, child, okay. Yeah, the child heading into college or the child heading in, you know, the young adult, because Mm -hmm. they now really don't, they've really grown so accustomed, maybe unconsciously, to thinking about what's best for the parent or sort of trying to think about what's Mm -hmm. best for the adoptive parent, that when it really is supposed to be
0: about them, they're, they're lost. Interesting, yeah, I can definitely see that. Are you a professional in the field of child welfare or juvenile justice or other family and youth services? If so, subscribe today to Youth Services Insider. It is the imprint's exclusive section on all the inside news you need to stay in the know. Funding opportunities, major federal and state policy shifts, interviews with key leaders, it's all available to you and their Youth Services Insider subscribers. Sign up for a monthly or yearly subscription today by visiting imprintnews.org and use backslash subscribe. Our podcast listeners get 10% off on their subscription by entering the promo code PODCAST10. So. We certainly read about, it, and, and lately it's, it's been in the news more that uh, adopted teens are more likely to have mental health issues and more likely to commit suicide. How do adoptive parents support their teens and young adults through their mental health and 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 to protect them if if they can?
1: I think, unfortunately, one of the hard parts of this, Don, is that there there's definitely some things that adoptive parents can do that. Would be the opposite of, you know, of helping, you know. Um, and then there are a few things that they could do, maybe to help and support. And some of the common mistakes that I think are missteps that we've all made, and maybe we continue to make because it's human nature. That, and this is a complaint from my clients who get this feedback and this this sort of input from the adults and even their peers constantly when they're struggling is for us to try to explain how important they are, explain how important life is, explain how important, you know, how loved they are. Mm -hmm. And in in reality, that really does not help, unfortunately. And I Mm -hmm. think we can see that when we're in that conversation, because they clearly don't Mm -hmm. respond, you know, well to that. And sometimes it even makes them feel worse So when we're thinking about the statistic and the statistic as it stands is that adoptees are four times more likely to attempt suicide, to attempt suicide than compared to non adoptees. And in that statistic, I really think a lot about this survival narrative that one of the unique aspects of adoptees is that they have this narrative where they were put at risk or sort of at risk at a young age. And for many adoptees, that's their first story. And because that's their first story, it makes it extra confusing because usually people have kind of a positive, take for granted, loving, stable story. But adoptees have this very upsetting, traumatic, tragic story or near tragic story. And so there's this feeling of I could have not survived and I was at risk. And I feel that that kind of continues to have to be kind of something that they grapple with, whether that's via thinking about suicide itself as it really, you know, because they're, you know, if it's in addition to mental health issues and other kinds of issues, or whether it's just thinking about deaths and other things. But I think sometimes mm-hmm. we underestimate how central that survival piece is for adopted teens and young adults, even to the point where they will not make changes that are really, truly necessary, whether it's breaking up with someone that it's really clearly time to break up with or leaving a job where it's really clearly time to leave this job, that that they, they hesitate to make changes because they feel so at risk that everything mm-hmm. can fall apart somehow.
0: Mm-hmm. And that contributes to the mental state that would lead one to consider suicide.
1: Yes, I think that in combination with... The challenge for adoptees of of not seeing their future. There's a quote that I had mentioned in the book that this adopted teen said: "Of if I can't know where I have been, I can't know where I'm going." Mm-hmm. And there is something about that that you know, if you're looking at your past and it's completely in the darkness, it's hard to then forge ahead because you don't necessarily want to follow the birth parent because the birth parent's life seems pretty challenging, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of times. And you don't necessarily feel like you can follow your adoptive parent because the adoptive parent maybe has so many different strengths and things like that. So it really feels pretty overwhelming to kind of forge your own path. And it's hard to even picture that you have a path. And so that, that really is part of suicidality. And, and the way that we you asked about how what parents can do, and one of the things that parents can do, which is not maybe what you had in mind, which is that you want the adopted teens to have opportunities in the outside world to explore their strengths and weaknesses. So that means volunteering, that means jobs, that means, you know, babysitting, that means this and that, because the more that you can start to carve out and whittle away at this feeling, and the more that you can do things that allow them to have a more of a vision of themselves, and what they bring to the table, the more that you that they will Mm -hmm. feel like they have a future,
0: Mm -hmm. the more they the more they will know their strengths and know their weaknesses and know themselves. Right. I mean, I'm
1: like, I had a client who when we first started talking about her future, she said she had no idea what she wanted to do. She was taking classes that were not aligned at all with her strengths, because those were the usual classes that people took when they didn't know what they wanted to do. But that doesn't necessarily <laughs> help <laughs> you know, <like laughs> economics and things like that, you know, yeah. it's like, well, that's always helpful. But for her, it didn't necessarily move her forward. And the place that we tended to start was, okay, well, let's think about the things that you're naturally good at and let's start to get jobs in those areas or even just volunteer things or other ways to explore those areas to start to tease out and to have some clarity in what that could look like for you. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is really what you can do besides mm-hmm. listening.
0: hmm Thank you so much, Katie Nassiger, for being with us today to talk about parenting, adoptive teens, and young adults. I truly appreciate your wisdom. Thank you, Don.